Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's about 45 seconds to 4 o'clock and it's just about time for Tuesday Home Time. Today we'll continue our series of talks by historian and author Brian McKinlay, and this week it will be the Russian Revolution. Nick McClellan, author and researcher, journalist and researcher, will be speaking about the Pacific Ocean Alliance. We'll be hearing a report on what's happening in Venezuela. As Jim McElroy says, there's a, they're a war unto themselves the right versus the left. Jim's been involved with Venezuela for many, many years. And the 30th anniversary of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. I'll be speaking with Dr Bill Williams, who is a member of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. But first, let's have it for Mr Kevin Healy. And many thanks to Mr Kevin Healy. And here at 3CR, it's now... A week, Jane, listener, when amid the objective honouring of the glorious dead of invasion and trained killing and slaughter, and there was a perfidious report that the Turks consider we invaded them. Where did that come from? When all we were doing was sculpturing the great values we all cherish and which made this country what it is. Train killing, slaughter, invasion, and I'm prepared to bet the glorious dead would rather be the not-so-glorious alive. Anyway, amid, congratulations to a Mr Scuttle-them-more-lash-son, Care Parliament House Canberra, for being the first, and for that matter, only entry to answer correctly our very difficult quiz we entered on last week. Well, not only the only correct entry, but also the only entry. Just to refresh the memory, as if anyone would forget what was on the week that was, evil unions must have a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Kanga Mission and anti-union specific laws and bureaucracies. Good banks most definitely must not have a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Kanga Mission. The last thing we need are specific laws and bureaucracies for the good, good banks. And the question? Spot the difference. Well, scuttle them, Care Canberra spotted the difference. Realised the clue was in the question. It's easy. Scuttle them is obviously very bright. As you said, the evil unions are evil, the good banks are good. Well done, scuttle them, well done, well spotted. On the good banks, one of their good practitioners, Mike Hertz the Poor, supremo of the Bendigo and Adelaide Bank, confirmed Scuttlethem's answer. A Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Kanga Mission would be a drain on the economy and a waste of taxpayers' money, and how selfless of non-taxpayers to care so about those who do pay tax. The most damning comment came from a collective statement by the big banks, swallowing their pride over vicious customer benefiting competition in a common cause. A Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Kanga Mission, they howled, would create a rod for True Blue Aussie's back by damaging the sector's reputation in the eyes of international investors. 
uh, hang on, hang on. Surely that doesn't mean what it means, does it? That if they had a royal kanga mission, they'd be sprung. That, surely not. There is something to hide or the corollary that you could only hold a royal kanga mission if there was nothing to hide. On the other hand, the poor dear's concern may be misplaced. The international investors may be deeply impressed by whatever it is. The banks don't want us to know. Honour among thieves, that sort of thing. A scuttle them more less son also care Parliament House Canberra. Hmm, coincidence. I wonder if it's the same bloke who said the regulator didn't need all the money the government took off it, now says it does need all this money so they can avoid a Royal Kanga mission and the banks would have to contribute and he would be angry. Very, very, very angry if the banks pass this contribution on to their customers and we can but imagine how the bank boardrooms must have been shaking in their boots. Well, their Swiss leather shoes when they heard scuttle them's entreaty. We hear what you say, but we must respect the expectations of our customers, who are, after all, our prime concern, that we will hit them with a fee for just everything, like our very clever walking-in-the-door fee, walking-out-the-door fee, and walking-past-the-door fee. In other words, getting them coming and going in every way. But let us say we regret having to make Scuttle them very, very, very angry because we respect his sincerity in making that statement. It reflects our sincerity when we say our customers are prime to everything we do. U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world would-be big supremo Donald Trample the poor has been traversing the country in that big private jet he poses in front of with his name screaming from the fuselage. He does have a few other private planes, but this is his major campaign vehicle. Well, it turns out its registration expired in January and he has been flying around illegally in an unregistered vehicle to wit, a private jet, a crime carrying about 280 grand in fines, presumably a pittance for Donald, but more importantly, three years in the slammer. <laughs> Calm down, listener, I, I wouldn't get my hopes up. Although technically Donald could be the first big supremo to take the oath of office from behind bars. Because we all know there's no such thing as a law for the rich and a law for the poor. On the latter, if one of the undeserving poor had failed to pay registration since January on the cheap bomb, the jalopy shield he needs to get to the assembly line or the below-the-poverty-line Walmart job, what odd shield he would have escaped the law for the poor? I did say presumably a pittance for Donald because the registration fee for a private jet is all of $5 for three years. So, so maybe he's not going as well as he makes out. Bet the registration for that law for the poor person's bob costs lots more than $5. Still, she or he could buy a private jet for commuting to work and cut the registration bill to a $1.33 a year. One of Donald Trample the Poor's heroes, Zion Supremo Benjamin, not another Yahoo, this week declared Syria's Golan Heights, seized by Zion 40 years ago and under military occupation since, was now officially Zion, and that was that. Evil Syria would never get it back. 
Well, Zion could also declare occupied Gaza, occupied West Bank are also now officially part of Zion rather than unofficially. After all, they legally throw locals off their land and establish legal Zion settlements and surely it's reasonable because the Palestinians are a non-people, stateless people with no country, which is the same thing. So how can a peace-loving, freedom-loving, democracy-loving Zion take their country when they haven't got a country in the first place and haven't had a country since Zion took their country, if you can follow all that. We didn't take their country, Benjamin corrected us. The free world, the lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy gave us our country because we too just love liberty, freedom and democracy and these terrorists are the enemies of liberty. That probably explains why the lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy so support Zion. The left-wing commie media was running riot here this morning, misleading the naive over this negative gearing debate. ABC Brekkie Show telling us a Grattan Institute report showed, under the Socialist Party policy, house prices would drop by only 2%, despite big supremo Malcolm Tunner bull predicting a disastrous crash in house prices. Interesting that, because the same government says it wants house prices to be affordable, but they're the government and this is capitalism, so there can't be a contradiction. And that Marxist rag, the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, same story headline, Grattan backs expansion of socialist policy. Property values would fall less than 2%. And the Grattan Institute suggests even stronger measures than the socialists, hard as that is to believe. These changes will make houses more affordable, the report says. They will have minimal impact on rents or the rates of new development. Negative impacts would be even more minimal and were at odds with Malcolm's warning the socialist policy would have a disastrous effect on property values, as Malcolm said. Thank goodness, listener, we have balance, non-agitprop nonsense, by turning to the safe ideological haven of the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin. Same story headline, gearing change price blow, scaling back negative gearing would cause property prices to fall by about 2%. The report, the Whopping Sin warns, acknowledges that making changes to the investment incentive would significantly hit the market. The Whopping Sin then quotes Malcolm saying just that and outlines the socialist disastrous anti-True Blue Aussie policy. Then, for real balance, on the so-called Think Peace editorial page, an independent so-called Think Peace, Labor's negative gearing hits renters and owners. A scathing objective attack on the socialist policy by no less a reliable source than, yes, Malcolm Tunner Bull himself. Hope he's a member of the media union. Knowing Lord Rupert's commitment to balance, we can guarantee we'll get Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Little Billy Short and Ambition's contribution any day now. But between the ABC and the Capitalist Review, those out-of-control lefty outlets on the one hand, and the Lord Rupert media on the other, we wouldn't have known it was the same story. Finally on that, good news. Capitalist Review headline Thursday. Relief for buyers. Sydney median house prices drop below a million dollars. Bet that led to scenes of wild celebration down at the King's Cross Homeless Support Centre. Good afternoon.
And many thanks to Mr Kevin Healy. And here at 3CR, it's now time for the next in our series of revolutions in the early 20th century with historian and author Brian McKinlay. Jan, a few weeks ago, I looked in, I think, two programs at the events in Ireland in 1916, what was called the Easter Rising, and the Irish Revolution and the War of Independence that followed. And then in the following week, I looked at 1916 in Australia, when war weariness and the desire of Billy Hughes, then Prime Minister, to commit Australia totally to the war on the Western Front, saw the conscription referendum. Now, the conscription referendum torn the heart out of Australia. It was literally a matter of life and death because Hughes wanted to conscript every Australian male up to the age of 45 and send them to the Western Front. Now, by 1916, the great battles on the Western Front, like the Somme, which had occurred early in the year, had seen three-quarters of a million men of both sides dead in, in a small river valley near Amiens, north of Paris. And this wasn't the only great battle on the Western Front at that time. So Hughes was virtually condemning, or would have condemned, a whole generation of Australian men. A terrible loss. We lost 60,000 young men in a country of only 5 million people. However, the conscription referendum, with a great effort by the Australian left in the Labor movement, was defeated amazingly. And Australia became the first country in which a democratic election stopped the warmongering government of the time. Now, Hughes went on to remain Prime Minister of a Conservative government, left the Labor Party, and became known, by the way, among people in the Labor movement as Hughes the Rat for his ratting on the Labor movement. But anyway, while these events were occurring here, dramatic events were occurring in Europe. Two years earlier, before the First World War had began in 1914, a Russian politician, a minor figure and a conservative, a man called Dernavo, an aristocrat of a minor kind, had written a memorandum to the Tsar and the other members of the cabinet of which he was a member. And the Dernavo memorandum is historic because he said to the Tsar and those who read the memorandum, Russia cannot win a war against a great industrial power like Germany. Russia was a developing country, but 80% of Russians lived and worked in the rural areas. Basically, a peasantry who lived, by the way, in terrible poverty, as was the custom in the great Russian cities. Russia was, a, by our standards, a third world country in 1916. But the millions of Russian men conscripted and killed in the battlefields of Eastern Europe against the Germans, and two million had died there, devastated Russian agriculture. The farms were left to be tended by women, by children, and by the old people. <clears throat> and this, of course, led to a fall in production of food and very nearly famine in all the great Russian cities by 1916, along with the shortage of fuel, and a country with notoriously cold winters, it made the lives of tens of millions of Russians almost unbearably miserable. Hunger and cold racked the entire Russian nation by the end of 1916. Uh, this was going to have a, a consequence that uh, nobody in the regime seemed to realise. And as I said, Dernavo's memorandum had warned these very people that Russia couldn't win a war, and... Dernavo didn't live to see it, by the way. He died in 1915. 
but he was quite an elderly man when he made the memorandum. But the, the consequences of the war were being felt everywhere in Europe, in Britain, in France, in Germany, but worst of all in Russia. And this was going to lead to the collapse of uh, the Russian regime, <clears throat> and it was going to lead to one of the great events of modern history, and that was the Russian Revolution. By the end of 1916, the Russian army was in a state of mutiny. Many of the soldiers had simply refused to go to the battlefield and had taken their guns and marched home. If you've seen the brilliant film of the novel Dr. Zhivago, there's a marvellous scene in that where a group of soldiers who've mutinied stand by the roadside as some of uh, a new batch of soldiers are marching to the front. And these mutineers urge the soldiers marching under the orders of their leaders and their officers not to go and as they march past and, and the officers of course denounce the mutineers uh, and this leads to one of the mutineers shooting the head officer and all the officers are then killed and the other soldiers seeing what the soldiers along the roadside are saying join them and, and the army mutinies and turns around and marches back home I would re recommend by the way if you've got any um, chance to read the novel or see the film, which is uh, often replayed on television, of Dr. Zhivago, you might uh, look at it because it paints a great picture of Russia at this moment in history. And a second book I might recommend is Thomas Keneally's book called The People's Train. Now, Keneally is one of the best-known Australian writers of his time, and Keneally has written a book about a Russian exile in Australia who goes back to fight in the revolution in 1917. A wonderful book, wonderful novel, and it's called The People's Train, and have a look in your local library. It's only published a few years ago, and it's probably still in the bookshops. I bought a copy of that 12 months ago. So I recommend those two books. We have come to the end of 1916, and by the way, one of the great internal crises in the royal family affecting the Tsar and his family was the crisis over a, a dirty, dishevelled, half-drunken holy man, if you can use that word, called Rasputin. Rasputin was a monk, and he had certain powers. He probably used hypnosis. People were overcome by Rasputin. They talked about his eyes, uh, the most memorable feature. He came into the royal court because the Tsar had a son and heir to the throne, Michael. The young son suffered from a terrible complaint, common among descendants of Queen Victoria, by the way, because the Tsarina was such. Uh, and this was hemophilia, terrible bleeding disease, which unfortunately has never been cured and is still around, and people suffer terribly from it. A bruise or a cut of the most minor kind, even some sort of internal problem, can cause the victim to bleed to death. One of Queen Victoria's sons bled to death after an accident on a staircase in which he bruised his knee. And during the night he bled copiously from the bruise and died. This was a, a terrible affliction. Rasputin had some ability to stabilise the Tsar's son's terrible attacks. And the Tsarina, the wife of the Tsar, realised this and... Rasputin was welcome at the palace, especially when the young boy, who was about 10 or 11, had these terrible attacks. And like all parents, the Tsar and his wife, to give them their due, were focused t 
totally on their son's problems. Some years later, not long ago, there was a pop song called Ra Ra Rasputin, Lover of the Russian Queen. But of course he wasn't. That was the gossip of the time. Why would she allow this strange figure to come and go in the quarters he liked? But the truth was uh, about the son's illness, which, oddly enough, they concealed from the public because he was the heir to the throne. And Russia had no tradition of women empress, so none of the daughters could succeed to the throne. So this is the situation at the end of 1916. Uh, and by the way, a group of aristocrats so alarmed at all this that they set up a party and invited Rasputin in St. Petersburg and poisoned him, murdered him, stabbed him before they actually managed to kill him. So as 1917 approached, the Russian regime was on the verge of collapse. Nobody had foreseen this except Donovo in 1914. Millions of people were starving. The soldiers were mutinying. And it only needed now one spark to trigger off a revolution. And that was to come in the first months of the year, in the first weeks of March. Oddly enough, uh, around the time of International Women's Day. Well, the women of St. Petersburg had a, a grievance, and that was the, the lack of food for their families, and in many cases, the lack of bread. Bread is a great staple in the Russian diet. If you've been to Russia, you'll know that a wonderfully coarse, what they call black bread, but it's a very dark, wholemeal bread, and very nourishing, is one of the great staples of the Russian diet. Well, even that vanished from the bakeries. And in the first week of March, women began to, to march and demonstrate, to demand something be done about food. And the net, that led pretty soon, within a few days, to women storming the bakeries to see if there was bread inside because it was believed that some of the bakers were holding back bread to force up the price. Uh, suddenly, this spread all over St. Petersburg and within a day or two, uh, women demonstrators had broken into the bakeries and had begun to clash with the police, who promptly fired, of course, on the demonstrators. That was the Tsarist regime's routine. But in this case, the women now had unexpected support. The city, St. Petersburg and Moscow too, were filling up with riotous, mutinying soldiers who'd marched home from the battlefield with their guns to see what was happening to their families. And what was happening, their families were starving. And these men went out onto the streets and joined the women. When the police fired on the women demonstrators, the soldiers, who were with them in many cases, fired back. And within a few hours, on the 7th of March, police stations all over St. Petersburg were raided by angry people who, in many cases, lynched and shot the police, killed them anyway and burned the police stations down. And suddenly, St. Petersburg, the capital, was in a state of total anarchy. No police, the military in mutiny, and the streets full of demonstrators, and people starving. The Tsar, at this moment, had chosen to leave his family in the capital and go off to the battlefield on the royal throne and urge the soldiers not to give up, to go on fighting, losing their lives in the interest of his regime. Well, he got nowhere, nowhere there because the mutiny had spread right across the Russian army. What happened, though, 
he decided his ministers, or what remained of his government in St. Petersburg, sent him telegrams on the royal train, which was quite a modern train, that he better return home, that things in the capital were so bad, he was needed there. Well, when he set off back to St. Petersburg, his train was stopped at a town called Puskov, several hundred miles from St. Petersburg, where a strike had broken out with the railway. And knowing the royal train was there, they pulled up some of the tracks. And so the Tsar and his entourage and their train was trapped in the station at Puskov. He couldn't go back to St. Petersburg if he wanted to, and he did. When this news reached his ministers in St. Petersburg, by now in a state of total anarchy, they decided that in an attempt to restore order in the capital, the Tsar must resign, must abdicate. And they rushed down to Puskov by train, where they met him on his train in the station and told him the bad news. And after a bit of an argument, they persuaded him that he would have to abdicate. He decided also to abdicate for his son, the crown prince, who could never become Tsar because of his terrible illness of uh, hemophilia. So the regime was over. After 300 years of Tsarist rule, absolute rule, it was all over. And there were those who still believed that Russia could only be governed by a Tsar. But it was gone. His abdication was carried back to Duma in St. Petersburg, the document, and he then returned to the capital where his wife and children were still in the Winter Palace and were virtually now prisoners. And an attempt was made to get a cousin of his, Crown Prince Michael, to take the throne. But Michael rather wisely decided that that wasn't for him and declined. And there was no one now to take the throne. And so Tsarism died as it stood there at that moment in history. And Russia was not quite yet a republic. But um, in the confusion, there was no head of state. Out of this there emerged a man called Kerensky. Kerensky is an important figure in this year. He called himself a socialist. Anyone can do that, really. A bit like calling yourself Christian. Whatever you like to believe you are, you are. But Kerensky had no real power. He had a state in anarchy, the army in mutiny, and worst of all, his Western allies wanted Russia to continue in the war. The Germans saw this moment as a wonderful victory. Oddly enough, it was at this very moment in history that the United States was entering the First World War. So these great changes in the war and in Europe and elsewhere were all taking place simultaneously. Kerensky became Prime Minister, and a month later he proclaimed, in April, he proclaimed the Russian Republic, and Tsarism was finished. But what would take its place? Here you have a country a vast country covering a sixth of the world's land surface, and Russia is still a vast country today, which was virtually ungovernable. All over the country, revolutionary committees were being formed by people on the left, and these were called Soviets. Soviet is just a Russian word for revolutionary committees. But these local Soviets, hundreds of them, were an idea of Trotsky from the failed revolution of 1905. And they, in many cases, took over the, the role of government because in many towns the police force had disappeared, the army was in mutiny, 
and the Soviet committees that were being formed, hundreds of them, these revolutionary groups, took over the running of the country. But this still wasn't a Soviet revolution. That would come in October. And uh, across Russia, of course, there were right-wing forces, some of them military forces, the generals, the aristocrats, who hoped that they could restore the Tsar. Uh, he and his family were now prisoners and were eventually sent off by train to a place called Tobolsk in Siberia, where they were held prisoner in a house. Treated pretty badly in terms of day-to-day -day treatment, but they were left there for the moment. Right-wing groups hoped they could rescue the Tsar and put him back on the throne. And if not that, at least overthrow the growing power of the left-wing groups that were spreading across the country, uh, the Soviets, as they were called. In the first months of 1916, all of these great events had taken place in St. Petersburg, the capital then, and also in Moscow and Kharkov, Odessa, and all the great cities of Russia. Meanwhile, the war continued for the Russians along the Eastern Front in Poland and elsewhere, where what remained of the Russian army was in conflict with the Germans. But at home, everybody realised that the war was the cause of all the trouble, and it had to be ended. Lenin came up. Lenin, by the way, was in exile in Switzerland with his wife and many other Russian revolutionaries who'd fled there in 1905. Lenin issued a call with a slogan which turned out to be a winner. The slogan was, All power to the Soviets, bread, work and peace. Everybody wanted those three things because tens of millions of Russians were unemployed because of the conflict and the trouble the war had caused the economy. And bread and, of course, peace was seen as the ultimate desire of people. This was happening everywhere in Europe. It had happened in Australia with the defeat of the conscription referendum. Nobody could even remember now what the war was supposed to be about and how would it end. Well, it would only end with one or both sides, perhaps, being totally ruined. The economy and the lives of tens of millions of people thrust into darkness of the most awful kind. But in Russia, the revolution now spread in all directions. But you did have the prospect of right-wing groups making a very powerful effort to seize power, remove Kerensky and the Duma, which had become a sort of democratic parliament in St. Petersburg. And Kerensky had also began to organise elections for what's called the Constituent Assembly. Now, this was going to be a body that would draft a new republican constitution for Russia. And everywhere in Europe, especially among the ruling elites, the kings and emperors, the collapse and the destruction of the Russian aristocracy and of the Tsar himself was seen as an enormous event. It's hard in our lifetime to imagine how much this event shook world opinion and even the, the ruling elites, the Kaiser, the King of England and all the rest, watched the events in Russia with absolute shock. Would they be next? Would their own people revolt against them? In fact, it was suggested and partly planned by the British government that the Tsar and his family be invited to Britain, in exile, of course. King George V, who was a pretty awful man and a conservative to the bootstraps, was convinced that this wave of revolutionary thought in Europe was beginning to spread to Britain. On the left in Britain, 
where anti-war opposition had begun to mount, as it had in Australia, people applauded the events in Russia, as some had, of course, had applauded the events the year before in Ireland. The Irish Revolution had aroused great support in Australia. Now, in Britain, the Russian Revolution did the same. The king took fright and personally intervened to stop the Prime Minister going ahead with plans to rescue the Russian royal family and bring them to Britain in exile. And ultimately, King George V, the grandfather of the present Queen, uh, was to be the real cause of the condemning to death, if that's the word, of the Russian royal family. Uh, an event that, luckily for him, British public largely forgot. Uh, he was the cousin, of course, of the Tsar and the Kaiser. All of the royals were related. So these events in Russia had shaken them all to their foundations. But in April and May, Russia stood on the verge of even bigger changes. Lenin had returned from exile in Switzerland, and Trotsky, who'd been in exile in the United States, did likewise. It was possible to get to Russia through Scandinavia, the Scandinavian countries weren't involved in the First World War, and Trotsky came by boat from America, and even more extraordinarily, the Kaiser and his generals allowed Lenin and the Bolshevik leaders in Switzerland to cross Germany, even though they were Russians and at war with Germany, to Sweden in the hope, and they were right, that Lenin and his supporters would create a new revolution in Russia and bring down the Russian army. This was a, um, a rather silly tactic on the part of the Kaiser, of course, because within a year there would be revolution in Germany. So at the early months of 1917, the March Revolution, rather in a kind of peaceful way, had brought down by great public outcry and action, had brought down the Tsar's regime. And Russia was now a republic. The Duma was a kind of democratic parliament. All censorship had ended. And those who had known the old Russia could hardly believe that in just a few months, such momentous change had affected the Russian people. But this was only really the beginning of what was to come. Because the great powers in Europe wanted Russia to continue in the war. And as long as Russia continued in the war, public anger against the war itself would make it impossible for any government in Russia, which went on with the war, to hold power. And this was, in fact, to be the case in many European countries in the year ahead. And Lenin realised this. When he returned from Switzerland, his Bolshevik party, the Communist Party, as we would now call it, was taking up his slogan, all power to the Soviets, bread, work and peace. And this involved, at no matter what cost, Russia surrendering to Germany. For the Germans, this was great news, wonderful news. It meant that the war on the Eastern Front was over. And they and their Austrian allies could now concentrate on the war in Western Europe, in Italy and in France. The United States, by the way, as I think I mentioned, had just entered the war. And so the Western allies had a new and powerful and immensely rich uh, ally to uh, join them in the battles on the Western Front. Uh, and that ultimately was to see Germany's defeat. But in Russia, the revolution, the real revolution, was just about to begin. And, uh, as I mentioned earlier, 
Thomas Keneally's wonderful novel, The People's Train, looks at an Australian-Russian exile who returns to take part in the revolution. And it's a book well worth reading. And that was historian and author Brian McKinley. And in two weeks' time, he'll be continuing to speak about the Russian Revolution. And then I believe he's going on to talk about other countries in Europe. Thanks to Brian McKinley. You're listening to 3CR, where the time right now is 4.35. And you can be listening on your radio, 8.55 a.m., digital, 3CR, or on your computer. It's streaming right now, or you can get a podcast and listen to it anytime in the future. So that's 3cr.org.au. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. In July 1976, from an old warehouse in High Street, Armadale, 3CR Community Radio hit the airwaves, heralding 40 years of independent, community-owned and controlled radio. This will be the first station owned and operated by a cooperative of community organisations on a Melbourne-wide basis. This is 3CR. As the status quo of old media is challenged, as publications come and go, in a country with the highest concentration of media ownership in the world... 3CR continues to broadcast radical, insightful radio 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're not talking about land rights, we're talking about sovereignty. That's why it's important for us to be at the 10 Embassy. From the protests against the Franklin River Dam to the 1998 waterfront dispute, from the east-west tunnel picket to the Aboriginal 10 Embassy, the history of 3CR is dynamic and passionate and ongoing. I was born here, I will die here. I am not moving. So as we celebrate 40 years in 2016, we ask you, our volunteers, listeners and supporters, to join in in saying... Happy birthday, 3CR! Next uh, update on what's happening in Venezuela. And this morning I spoke with Jim McElroy from Socialist Alliance. Jim has lived and worked in Venezuela and been a supporter for many years. Jim, let's start with the threats to public housing in Venezuela. This has now become one of the cutting-edge issues in the ongoing war between the right wing in Venezuela and the revolutionary government and the people. That's the question of public housing. The institution of the Mission Vivienda housing mission was one of the great achievements under President Hugo Chavez. They've now created something between, I think it's one and a half to two million homes, and these homes are good quality public housing. If only we could do the same sort of thing in Australia. At the moment, we're selling off all the public housing, but in Venezuela, they're building huge amounts of public housing and very good quality. They're also using it as an opportunity to 
pursue the government's policy of decentralisation, that a lot of the housing is not necessarily in the centre of Caracas or big cities. This has been an enormous opportunity for the poor people in Venezuela to benefit. What is happening at the moment is that the right-wing controlled National Assembly is seeking to privatise this public housing. What happens with the existing situation is that a poor family will give will be given the keys to one of these houses and it's basically for them and their family and even their descendants but they're not able to sell it. What the right wing are trying to do is say that they should have the right to sell it. They're hoping that that will, you know, win support from some of the people who receive the benefit of the housing because that would be a big financial gain to them. But it runs against the principle of public housing program, which has been one of the, the enormous gains that the Venezuelan people have received. And there's been big demonstrations in Venezuela against the new right wing housing law seems that the majority of the poor people, and including the people who have the houses, are opposed to any change in the situation. And what power does the right wing have to bring this to fruition if they want to? What we've got in Venezuela at the moment, and contrary to the general impression being given in the Western media, is that the Venezuelan government has collapsed. We have a standoff. We've basically got dual power situation with the right wing for the first time having gained control of the National Assembly last December. They have one or two thirds majority which gives them extra powers under the constitution to institute a number of changes but the president still has the power to veto and also any change like this can be challenged in the high court uh, supreme court sorry what's happening now is a standoff because the president is refusing to ratify the the law probably i imagine like a whole lot of other things at the moment is going to end up in the court but in the meantime, it's basically a popular standoff between the supporters of the Bolivarian Revolution and the right-wing opponents. This is going to play out over the next uh, 12 months or the next several years. Well, the Supreme Court's already ruled on one important issue, and that's the amnesty law. They've thrown out the changes. That's correct. That's led to another standoff, and, you know, that may lead down the track to the right wing because the right wing has accused the court of being puppets of the government and all that sort of thing which of course is 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 retailed in the western media the western media forget to point out that uh, in most western countries including the u.s and australia high court judges are appointed by the government why not say that the australian high court is a puppet of the government if a government is in power in australia for a period of time they get to appoint a number of new judges this is a um, uh, you know, a situation that exists in, in, in many parts of the world. But essentially the court's decision was very, very clear on the, um, on the amnesty law. And what President Maduro has proposed in place of amnesty, and I should point out that this amnesty is relating to people convicted of criminal offences, violence, incitement to murder, and even murder. So we're not talking about people being convicted for thought crimes. We're, we're talking about actual acts of violence. And the Western media has picked this up and said, you know, oh, this is uh, an example of Venezuela, you know, moving towards a police state and so on. But um, in fact, the, the evidence is absolutely clear that these people were involved in, in organising the various right-wing violences that had, that had happened two years ago when they organized the Garimbas, which was supposed to bring Maduro down. Something over 40 people were killed in those violent upsurges, including police, but also a number of civilians. Are we going to say that, um, you know, people should be able to get away with that sort of stuff? You know, that's the attitude of the West. It appears that the right-wing has rejected 
Maduro's proposal for a truth commission. But, uh, you know, that's an, yet another issue that's, uh, that's going to have to play out over a period of time. How can it play out if the, if the, if the Supreme Court's already decided against the amnesty law? Isn't that the end of it? It won't go through at the moment, but the point is yet another issue in the ongoing struggle. You know, in the end, it's going to, it's going to come down to whether the, whether the government is able to impose its will or, or whether the National Assembly... I mean, they'll keep coming back to it. Because these are their leaders, a lot of their leaders are in, or not, some of their leaders are in, in prison for these crimes. You know, they're, they're, going to, they're going to keep coming back to it for, for sure. An important development, if it goes ahead, is Talisur. You often talk about the importance of Talisur. You know, they call it uh, Latin America's answer to CNN. It's the only nas- uh, international media operation which has uh, TV, radio, and also there's a website, I'll, actually I'll give a plug for that straight away, that people, if you want to find out you know, what's happening in Latin America, you, you can look up Telesur English, T-E-L-E-S-U-R English. It comes up at their website, very valuable uh, source of information. Telesur has not been destroyed. It's that uh, the, the particular issue, main issue at the moment, is that in Argentina, the new right-wing government of Macri is attempting to remove telesurf from the um, airwaves in in Argentina and effectively at the moment in Argentina telesur is the only progressive voice similar to much of Latin America the great majority of the media are extreme right wing there's no uh, other opposition that's why the right wing in Argentina is trying to destroy it but otherwise telesur is still operating still backed uh, still operating certainly in in uh, it can be received in many countries in Latin America, especially Venezuela, Ecuador, Bolivia, through and through the northern part of South America. Where does it broadcast from? Its headquarters is actually in Caracas, but it has branches and offices in, in a number of many countries, actually, in Latin America. And it also broadcasts to the Caribbean. There's able to be received in English information uh, in, the, in the British-speaking uh, West Indies. Is it funded by the particular governments where it's, it's broadcast? It's mainly funded by Venezuela. Or, well, it was originally set up as an arrangement between the progressive governments of Cuba, Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador. Since then, other progressive governments such as El Salvador, Nicaragua and other, and other countries have, have come in in support of it. So, I mean, that's still another battleground. It may well be that other right-wing governments are going to... Uh, you know, move against Telesur in Latin America. So that's a, that's another front in the, in the war. Have you got any more fronts? <laughs> we could mention what's happening in, in broad, more broadly in Latin America with the um, question of Brazil. People will be aware now, I'm not uh, really an expert on the situation in Brazil, but it's very clear that what is happening there is a creeping coup. Move to impeach President uh, Dilma Rousseff is essentially a move by right-wing forces very similar to you know, what's happening in Venezuela and lots of other countries. Backed by the United States, and we should point that out, the US is well and truly behind all these moves that are taking place to try to remove the left-of-centre government in Brazil. Now, um, plenty of criticism that could be put at the door of the Workers' Party government in Brazil, which was you know, previously led by President Lula, he had two terms and he had to leave, so Dilma has been in power now. But, uh, yeah, there's a move by the right-wing 
in the legislature there, similar, I suppose, to Venezuela, to try to um, impeach, impeach her on, on some rather spurious grounds, so uh, clearly political grounds, and uh, if it has now passed through the lower house and it's going to the Senate, so it's a very critical time in Brazil because if Dilma loses or is removed, temporarily at least, then you know we're going to see a, a process similar to what's happened in Argentina with, uh, with the incoming of a right-wing government there. And all the gains that have been made by left-of-centre governments, part of the so-called pink tide of Latin America, will you know, be under threat. Just going back to Venezuela for a moment, there's been political killings. You t- spoke about the, the people who are in jail because of killings in the past, but the killings continue. That's correct, yes. There's been the murder of leading members of the Socialist Party of Venezuela, just yeah, just this year. You know, there's an assassination program going on and there's plenty of evidence to show that a number of these assassinations have been have come from paramilitaries coming over from Colombia and being hired by um, right-wing forces in Venezuela to, um, to eliminate their opponents. So you don't read anything about this in the media. All you read about is, is the, uh, you know, punity law. And unfortunately... This uh, campaign against Venezuela spreads to organisations like Human Rights Watch and uh, the United Nations have, have, have backed all this, all this stuff up uh, without proper investigation and, and giving both sides of the story. It's basically a new war. It's an economic and political war that's been launched. Uh, I mean, this is not new. This has been going on in Venezuela for ever since Hugo Chavez won the election in 1998. We've only just gone past the 14th anniversary of the 2002 coup where right-wing pro-oligarchy and right-wing military forces seized power and, and uh, arrested Chavez. There's plenty of evidence that they were probably about to assassinate him. Fortunately, a popular rebellion of the people in Caracas coming down and surrounding the, the palace plus the a progressive majority of the military rose up and forced them to leave. Chavez was returned to power. So we haven't yet seen a sign of what's happening in the military. The military has, rather unusually for Latin America, been basically on the side of the revolution because after that coup, a lot of the right-wing upper core officers were forced, were forced out. It's been really a people's army that's done a lot of civil construction works and other things like that. So we don't know what's going on inside the army, but at this stage, the evidence is the majority of the army is supporting the government and refusing to engage in any activity, uh, you know, which has been unfortunately normal for Latin America over two centuries, military coups. One area that's um, pit Maduro against the people, or certain social movements and indigenous peoples, is the open pit mining in the Orinoco Arc. Can you explain what the Orinoco Arc is and what, he's, what he wants to do? You know, this is, of course, a big uh, long, ongoing discussion, uh, you know, the, the so-called debate over extractivism, which many, you know, Western NGOs and environmental organisations are concerned about, and, and, of course, rightly so. The problem that you have... Similar to Ecuador, Bolivia, those countries with um, progressive governments, is that they're sort of trapped in an economic a trap which has been set historically. In, in Venezuela, Venezuela was, was an oil producer and virtually the rest of the economy collapsed under the old order. 
under the rule of the oligarchy, and this is the inheritance that uh, Chavez and now Maduro have got. They are desperate to try to, uh, you know, diversify their economy, and unfortunately part of it does involve, has to involve other at the moment until they can overcome the, 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 the terrible economic problems, including, of course, the collapse in the price of oil, which is, you know, really a major source of the economic problems they face. They're looking for other sources, including sources of mining. Venezuela does have an enormous variety of natural resources. I think the government is trying to is trying to diversify there, but uh, you know, at the moment they can't seem to rely on the price of oil. I might mention that there's just been in uh, on the Venezuela analysis. I would urge your listeners to check out Venezuela analysis. Just one word: venezuelaanalysis.com. That's another very good English language source of information. But the uh, oil minister of Venezuela has accused the US of sabotaging the meeting which took place in Doha, the OPEC meeting. The US put a lot of pressure on Saudi Arabia and a couple of other countries to refuse to go along with what had been an agreed proposal that there would be a cap put on oil production, which would have had a the result of, of increasing the, the world price of oil. At the very last minute, Saudi Arabia, which had previously agreed to do this, pulled out. Plenty of evidence that the United States was putting enormous pressure on Saudi Arabia to do that. Another serious problem. It's probably uh, you know putting the future of OPEC in doubt at the moment, since there appears to be, Venezuela and all ministers said, a complete lack of trust within the leadership of the uh, of, of OPEC. Coming back to your question, Venezuela can't, you know, rely on a high price of oil to fund their social programs, their social missions, and they're looking for other alternatives. So, so this is a dilemma, isn't it? I mean, we in the West and, and among uh, environmental, pro-environmental organisations can take a whole other now position and criticise Venezuela for increasing its mining and other activities, but until we are able to give support to Venezuela, to give sufficient support to Venezuela that it can overcome its political problems, they face a very unfortunate choice. And, I mean, a similar dilemma faces the government of Ecuador and of Bolivia as well, and really right through Latin America. What about food production? Are they, are they moving in that direction to increase that? They are desperately trying to do that. One of the things that happened with the old regime was virtually the total collapse of agriculture. It's sort of ironical when you think of Latin America, you know, being, you know, in the past a peasant-based society. Because of Venezuela's complete reliance on oil, basically agriculture collapsed. The government is now desperately trying to revive agriculture. A couple of the missions are working on, on trying to put people back onto the land, give communities rights to land. Agricultural cooperatives are being set up. There's uh, social missions involved in, in trying to encourage people to grow new crops, and, and they are trying to do that. One of the ironies in the previous period was that it was the very increase in the standard of living of the people that was brought about under Chavez that uh, caused some of the shortages because suddenly people had more income and they were able to buy more things. And first thing, of course, they bought was more food <laughs> and more variety of food. And, of course, this led to greater imports of food. So... You had a sort of irony there that the, the, the rise in living standards actually worsened the um, problem of importation of so much of uh, Venezuela's goods. But 
Yes, they are trying to diversify their economy. They're trying to increase manufacturing. They're trying to settle people on the land and, and go back to some of the extremely fertile land in Venezuela, which was allowed to lie fallow. But another big problem, of course, is the existence of the oligarchy who still control a lot of the land and they're not making use of it. You know, there's, there's a move to try to, you know, say that if landowners refuse to properly utilise their land for productive activity, it should be made available to the local people to do that. They tried that in Argentina, didn't they? Yes, to some extent, yes. I think the process in Argentina was generally much more gradual and, and less, uh, less radical than has taken place in Venezuela and Bolivia and Ecuador. Some moves were made, but of course everything's being threatened now by the new Macri government who's proceeding to sack thousands of public servants, privatise you know, government property, turn back the progressive gains that took place under, under Kirchner. Sounds a lot like Australia, really. I'm just wondering if the co-ops and the missions are still being funded enough to keep them going. That sector is struggling because of the financial crisis, you know. I mean, it, it, is, it is a fact that a lot of the funding for the missions was coming from the oil, profits from the oil revenue, but with, with oil at, you know, something like $40 a barrel, the government is not making anything like a, a major profit out of it. It's a real dilemma at the moment. They, they, they are still pushing for, for attempts to find ways to limit the glut of oil that's on the market, world market at the moment, which would at least give them some sort of reasonable profit on the oil and allow them to fund the, uh, the missions and the, and, the so, and the social missions and the uh, cooperatives. Just to finish, Jim, we should mention the humanitarian disaster that's happened in Ecuador. Yes, well, Venezuela has been generous in sending teams of uh, rescue workers and uh, humanitarian workers to Ecuador. Venezuela are brothers and sisters with Ecuador and Bolivia in particular. Their, their governments have been working very closely together. They've been cooperative, cooperating, and that's one of the developments in the last few years that they've been trying to cooperate more closely together. Cuba also, of course, is, you know, number one in terms of uh, providing assistance to, to other countries, even though they're still a very poor country, but they have enormous resources in terms of doctors and um, teachers, and they've been in, in the front line there. So we hope that terrible loss that's taken place in Ecuador can be rectified and the people can be rehoused and, and so on. But um, it's just really sad that, you know, countries that are struggling to escape from the, the cycle of poverty in the third world and which have progressive governments and progressive programs such as uh, Ecuador, Bolivia and Venezuela, you know, they seem to be the first to be hit not only by natural disasters like um, earthquakes but, uh, but the effects of climate change as well. Thanks, Jim. And that was Jim McElroy from Sydney. He's a member of Socialist Alliance speaking about Venezuela and the neighbouring countries in South America. It's 4.57. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to... Fill in the dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, fill in the... 
3CR Community Radio. You got it right. You've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am. We're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976, and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape, and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch, and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers, and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Hoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St Kilder. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, Ah, ah, ah. That stands for reduce, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. Freeze, fellas, you're under arrest. What do I do? Um, call a lawyer? Hello, Fitzroy Legal Service. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if you are arrested, you should make a no-comment interview. A no-comment interview? Yeah. Well, how do I do that? You say... No, no comment! To everything? Yes, except your name and address. Every other question you should answer with no comment. So if he asks me what colour my shoes are, I say no comment? Yes, you say... No, no comment! To everything? Yes. Say, no comment. If you are arrested, exercise your right to contact a lawyer and say no comment. Fitzroy Legal Service proudly supporting 3CR. Next on Tuesday Home Time, journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. And Nick, I think we can call this segment the health and well-being of the Pacific. The Pacific Oceans Alliance was created uh, in 2014 and as the name suggests, it's a, a broad network of people who are concerned about the oceans, concerned about the importance that the oceans have, not only for economy, but for culture, for identity, for Pacific Islanders, and particularly to protect the oceans. Today, we're seeing all sorts of environmental and social impacts on the oceans, particularly with climate change, the overfishing of marine resources, and potential environmental impacts from marine exploitation of oil and gas and other sea minerals. Pacific Islands are trying to come together to protect the oceans. Just what part of the world are oceans? What's the percentage, land and sea? Well, the Pacific Ocean is huge. It makes up more than a third of the world's surface. So it's a vast area between the, the continents. Indeed, the oceans make up, uh, you know, 80-odd percent of the, the surface of the globe, and the Pacific is the largest of all the oceans in the world particularly in the southwest Pacific and the central Pacific, where most of the Pacific Island nations are located. Oceans are central to life. And indeed, many have started saying, well, look, we're not small island states. We're, in fact, large ocean states. Under the law of the sea, which was created in 1982, uh, which most countries in the world, except, say, the United States, have ratified and signed, um, the law of the sea says that around every piece of land and reef and island, you can draw essentially 200-mile exclusive economic zones. And for archipelagos, that spreads out over vast distances. And so each country is responsible for the management, the conservation, and indeed the exploitation of resources within those exclusive economic zones. 
It's also possible to extend those zones further out if you have an undersea continental shelf. And so Australia has extended its uh, zone out to 340 miles rather than just the 200 miles because of the vast uh, underwater continental shelves that extend uh, beyond the Australian continent. These are significant areas, millions of square kilometres in some cases in the Pacific, because of key ocean resources such as tuna, a lot of resources to uh, manage and uh, conserve or indeed exploit. What if the island states are still part of a colonial empire? Well, you have that situation, particularly with France. Metropolitan France has a pretty small exclusive economic zone. You only have to look at the map. It's hemmed in by England, by Belgium, by Spain, Portugal and so on. So France's exclusive economic zone in Europe is about 330,000 square kilometres. But with all of its overseas departments and territories that are spread across every ocean of the world, France has another 11 million square kilometres of exclusive economic zone. It's the second largest in the world after the United States. So they're not going to give that that easily. Well, indeed, in the Pacific, there's um, about 7 million square kilometres of exclusive economic zone, 1.3 million around uh, New Caledonia, the Melanesian nation just off the coast of Queensland, another 400-odd thousand around uh, Wallace and Futuna, two uh, three small islands in the Polynesian group. French Polynesia, which is in fact five archipelagos spread across a vast area, an area as wide as Australia, has five million square kilometres of exclusive economic zone. So that's a huge area, as wide as Europe, um, as wide as Australia. And France maintains sovereignty under international law. Now, also under international law, France is supposed to administer the resources of that vast zone for the benefit of the population of French Polynesia. And there's a lot of concern, in fact, that that's not happening. So although, uh, you know, colonialism, as we've talked about many times on this program, is a relic of the, the 19th to 20th century, France is still maintaining its colonial possessions in the region simply because there are potentially in the 21st century benefits from maintaining control and sovereignty over these vast areas. French President François Hollande visited Tahiti in uh, February this year and announced that France would be sending a new multi-mission patrol boat to be based in French Polynesia to patrol these exclusive economic zones. And he said uh, that the presence of French territories in the region allowed France to maintain its uh, its global zone. Even there's an uninhabited island uh, under French sovereignty called Clipperton, which is up near Mexico, really isolated. No one lives there. It's a piece of rock, essentially. But the exclusive economic zone that surrounds it, 440,000 square kilometres, is larger than the exclusive economic zone in the English Channel in the Mediterranean. And so these uh, overseas territories, overseas uh, colonies, are a vital resource for powers like the United States and France, which still maintain colonial empires in the Pacific. And what are those resources that the people are missing out on? Well, they're incredibly diverse nowadays. Um, The obvious one is fish. In the Pacific, fisheries uh, are are really important, both local fisheries and coastal fisheries for the islanders, but also deep water fishing nations coming in to chase tuna. About 70% of the world's tuna comes from the central and uh, western Pacific. It's a huge global resource. You think of sashimi, you think of how many cans of tuna you've had on sandwiches over the years. Um, And so the tuna largely comes from the Pacific. That's the core resource, and there's different species of tuna, albacore and skipjack and so on. More importantly nowadays, there's seabed minerals, 
people have known for decades, for many decades, that on the ocean floor, particularly in the east of the Pacific, in Polynesia, there are seabed minerals. These are sometimes nodules of metals like manganese, nickel, cobalt and others. They're formed geologically and there are a whole range of metallic nodules, particularly in the east of the Pacific. There's also um, a venting that can create rare earths, um, which are important nowadays. Uh, people use rare earths for everything to mobile phones, to other catalytic converters and so on. For a long time, people have known that there's uh, significant amounts of, uh, of minerals on the ocean floor or on the subsurface of the uh, underwater areas, but it's incredibly costly to get them off the ground and to get them you know, up and then marketed and, and, and distributed. But now people are moving towards seabed mining. In fact, there's a company called Nautilus, which is just beginning uh, currently a seabed mining operation as a test operation off the coast of Papua New Guinea uh, with support from a French corporation called Technip and other companies. Once again, the law of the sea has an important role to play in this. The vast areas outside exclusive economic zones were declared under the law of the sea for the common interest of humanity, but areas outside exclusive economic zones can be uh, allocated for exploration for undersea resources, whether that's oil and gas deep in the substructure of the ocean or these seabed minerals that lay around on the floor. There's a lot of exploration going on, and there's an interesting phenomenon where transnational corporations can partner with a developing country to claim an area for exploration. And so you can see the maps. Uh, there's a patchwork across areas, uh, one area known as the Clipperton Clarion Fracture, which is a, a vast ocean trench um, near Clipperton and heading towards the Central Pacific. And there's a patchwork of areas that different companies, like Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing and others, in partnership with developing countries are using for exploration in the hope that later this century people will be able to, in a cost-effective way, suck up minerals from the ocean floor using, I mean, in summary, giant vacuum cleaners essentially, filter out all the crap and then uh, uh, take the valuable minerals uh, onshore for processing. As I say, people sort of know that it's there, but it can't be done in a cost-effective way. But as technologies change and as terrestrial mining becomes harder, the economics of this are more popular. It's the same with oil and gas exploration. We've found a lot of the close-to-coastline oil. In Australia, you think of the Northwest Shelf or the Bass Strait oil fields off the coast of Gippsland that have been the major source of Australia's oil and gas wealth. The oil and, and gas that's in the waters between Australia and uh, Timor, for example, are all in relatively shallow waters. But we've sucked up most of the resources from those petroleum provinces, as they're described, and Geoscience Australia, an Australian government uh, corporation, involved with a number of transnational corporations, is now involved in deep-sea exploration. And we've seen that particularly in America, like the Gulf of Mexico, where the oil fields close to shore have been exploited since the 1940s, and now people are moving deeper and deeper offshore, looking for new Eldorados. But, of course, the safety and the hazards of uh, drilling operations so far in deep water causes incredible technical complications and incredible opportunities for damage. And we've seen the Halliburton rig in, uh, in America blow and uh, uh, the death of workers on that and enormous environmental pollution off the coast of Louisiana. The grave danger now is in the Arctic. One of the things about sea level rise and uh, the global warming is 
the retreat of Arctic ice. And people believe that there'll be a summer free passage across the Arctic as the ice retreats, which hasn't been seen for centuries. And of course, every oil company in the world, from Russia's Gazprom to American corporations and others, is interested to start exploring the Arctic. And there's a major battle looming over deep water exploration in Arctic conditions. And as you can imagine, the conditions of operating oil rigs in the Arctic is going to be hellish. But there's this insatiable demand for fossil fuels, people wanting to suck as much out of the ground as they can before uh, we make the historic transition towards renewable energy, which is inevitably required because of climate change. And of course, with ice melting, you have sea level rise. Well, this is one of the big challenges uh, for island nations, and it's it's a really deep cultural thing. You know, the oceans are life. People in the Pacific have travelled across, have fished in, um, have bathed in the oceans, and and uh, most Pacific cultures. Uh, you know, the image that's often used is the canoe. You know, which is the the means of transporting across these liquid highways. People talk about the Pacific as a liquid continent. You know, Australia's a continent, America's a continent. Well, the Pacific has the liquid continent. And yet the oceans, environmentally, are potentially going to be hazardous. We're seeing ocean warming as one of the key features of uh, um, global warming. And the warming of the oceans has all sorts of implications, causes incredible damage to corals, and anyone who's read the papers recently will have seen that with the El Nino phenomenon we've had over the, the past summer, there's massive coral bleaching in uh, the Great Barrier Reef and in coral reefs around the Pacific. That's where um, the small uh, creatures and animals that live within the coral flee, uh, the colour disappears and they're, they're bleached white. They can recover, but if it happens too often and too regularly, it can kill the coral. And, of course, that has implications that... You know, destroys tourism interest, uh, can uh, ruin the reef ecology, for f- which are fish breeding grounds. So the hazards of ocean warming and ocean acidification, where corals and shellfish can be damaged by the increasing acidity of the ocean, once again caused by carbon dioxide being absorbed into the oceans. These are really major, major threats, and they're so-called slow-onset threats. You know, you see the damage that may come from a cyclone as a sort of manifestation of the long-term trends we're seeing in the climate, but these slow-onset ones are very hard to, to pick and certainly hard to attribute responsibility to. You know, Australia can say, well, it's not my carbon that's causing the problems in the ocean, it's the Chinese carbon or whatever. So this is where, as I say, it's called global warming for a reason. This is a global challenge. There's a lot of scientific research being done about what are the tipping points. In the Pacific, for example, the Food and Agriculture Organization, the UN agency, has done a lot of work on the spawning of tuna. And they found that the migratory patterns of spawning tuna change according to ocean temperatures. So if the ocean's going to be warmer in certain areas, the fish will move in different ways and to different places. Now, that has real implications if your exclusive economic zone is a breeding ground for tuna, and all of a sudden the tuna's going or gone, what does that mean for your economy? What does that mean for people's livelihoods? And for small island nations like Kiribati that have very little industry, no manufacturing, um, only a bit of services like tourism and things like that, the oceans are are the basis of their economy. And uh, so these sort of changes in ocean warming, ocean acidification, changing patterns of fish breeding are going to have medium to long-term implications. It's why Pacific countries are so angry and so forthright at the climate negotiations we see every year. What about ocean dumping? 
Once again, it's a major hazard, and this goes back uh, a long time, and it was one of the earliest attempts by the Pacific countries to come together to stop the dumping of hazardous and particularly nuclear materials. During the 1970s, for example, there was a major push by Japan's nuclear industry as they expanded uh, nuclear power reactors to dump nuclear waste in deep ocean trenches. There's an ocean trench called the Marianas Trench, which is near the Marianas Islands, which are Micronesian island in the north of the Pacific up towards the Philippines. It's a deep, deep ocean trench, kilometres down, uh, between two tectonic plates. And the idea was that you could dump this stuff right at the bottom and no one would know it was there. And it, uh, with a vast ocean, you know, any problems would be diluted and so on. Pacific Islanders at the time quite understandably thought that the notion of dumping toxics and nuclear waste into the ocean was crazy and uh, fought against it and won. So the London Dumping Convention, uh, which was an international agreement signed decades ago, uh, the Niue Treaty and other treaties prohibit all sorts of dumping of hazardous, toxic and especially nuclear waste in the oceans. doesn't mean it doesn't happen and indeed uh, there's, there's many examples where countries have done this but there are now international agreements which Pacific Island countries were central in driving during the era when the law of the sea was being created to try and regulate this. We've seen examples where colonial powers have continued to do so after um, the end of nuclear testing in French Polynesia, for example. France had lots of contaminated debris on uh, Mururoa and Fungatofa atolls, the two nuclear test sites um, in French Polynesia, and so they gathered up tons and tons and tons of debris, contaminated soil, equipment that had been irradiated, all sorts of things, and they created two ocean sites um, just off the coast of Mururoa, and they literally just dumped the stuff, like filled up 44-gallon drums with contaminated materials, poured concrete on the top like a sort of plug, and chucked it in the ocean. Now, anyone who's been on a farm knows how long a 44-gallon drum's going to last, particularly in a salty environment. It's crazy. And we're talking, like, serious amounts of stuff. In the uh, Oscar site, there's 2,650 tonnes of contaminated material. In the November site off the coast of Mororoa, there's another 750 tonnes of contaminated material. And these are literally just dumped in the ocean, including planes, you know, that flew through the mushroom cloud to collect samples uh, back in the 70s and things, things that couldn't be taken back to France. So they just chucked them in the ocean. Going back for, for, for many years, after the Vietnam War, for example, the US government discarded uh, a whole range of uh, chemical weapons and mustard gas. After both the Second World War and the Vietnam War, the US Army uh, dumped stuff into the ocean uh, um, off the coast of Hawaii, off the coast of Queensland, um, off the coast of the Solomon Islands. There's dumping of those sort of shells. And now, of course, um, those are leaking uh, picric acid and other, other effects into the ocean. So this notion that the ocean's empty, you know, well, you fill up empty places, uh, and, and that's been a tradition for major powers. What rules are there for ocean liners that are plying the Pacific? Well, same sort of problem. You know, when you've got an ocean liner with thousands of people on board, the sewerage uh, has to be vented every now and then, and if it's not, you get gastro outbreaks. You often see uh, reports of, you know, people coming back from gastric uh, problems. So uh, there's supposed to be uh, deep ocean uh, venting of sewerage um, from this. Bit by bit, it doesn't mean much. As I say, the ocean is enormous. But when you add it all together, it starts mounting up. And what we've seen, for example, is the growth of what's called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. One of the interesting phenomena is that the ocean currents uh, 
cause what are called gyres, which are just basically like a, a, a t- tornado. Imagine the water going down a plug hole and it draws together material across the ocean. A couple of decades ago, people found in the central Pacific, um, up towards Hawaii, uh, near the equator, these two vast plastic gyres where basically all the bottles that people chucked in the ocean, you know, fishermen have gone out fishing and chucked an empty plastic bottle off uh, that's floated away and broken down over time. And so you've got these microplastics, which are small lumps, you know, uh, fingernail-sized lumps of plastic scattered across an area as big as Texas. It's a huge phenomenon where, and, you know, there's this plastic soup, essentially, as biodegradable bottles break down. And uh, it's worth looking up the photos of it. Quite astounding. And increasingly, many seabirds now are entrapped in plastic. You get, you know, the six-pack of beer and you rip off the... The, the plastic uh, that contains the, the six-pack of beer and birds strangle themselves on this. And so, you know, the oceans are under enormous pressure from pollution, from overfishing. The Atlantic and Indian Oceans have essentially been fished out. You know, long-standing fishing fleets in the North Sea are now gone. The cod fleets uh, that used to be England's pride have gone. The cod cod uh, stocks have been overfished and... Uh, and we're seeing that the Pacific is really the last frontier for fishing. And one of the major battles that's happened over the last two or three decades is, apart from protecting the ocean from pollution, is to protect the ocean from illegal and undocumented fishing. You know, going back uh, to the 1970s, Pacific countries started saying, under the law of the sea, which was finally brought in in the 1980s, you know, we control these ocean resources and we should get some benefit from it. If we can't do the deep water fishing ourselves because we don't have the the fishing fleets, the persainers as they're called, these vast fishing boats, we should license other countries to come in. So the first agreement with the United States and then later with Asian deep water fishing nations, China, Taiwan, Korea, Japan particularly, uh, the, the Pacific tried to get a deal out of licensing fees and royalties. And so, you know, by the 1990s, about $2 billion dollars US of tuna being taken from the Pacific every year and the Pacific was getting about 150 million in revenues and royalties 1.85 billion dollars worth of benefits was going to the deep water fishing nations because they had the technology and the Pacific realized that they were being ripped off and one of the great success stories of Pacific regionalism has been attempts by Pacific Island governments to negotiate a better deal from the deep water fishing nations saying, if you're coming in, firstly, we don't want you overfishing. We want to have sustainable fishing so that you don't take too much of a particular type of tuna, for example, so that they've got time to regenerate and keep the stock going for generations to come because we live off the fish as well as the revenues from deep water fishing. So there's a whole question about you know, maintaining a sustainable catch And secondly, there's about monitoring this. Eight of the largest fishing nations in the Pacific Islands came together and signed an agreement called the Nauru Agreement. And there's now a regional organisation called PNA, the Parties to the Nauru Agreement. And PNA has been one of the huge successes of Pacific regionalism because they've banded together and realised that the deepwater fishing nations will try and buy off one country to undercut the others. And it's only if they hang together can they avoid hanging separately and so you've got agreements now with a scheme known as the VDS scheme, the Vessel Day Scheme, so that through complex formula, or scientific, part political, they set the number of days that people can come fishing 
in Pacific zones and they set that limit and try and cap it to say, okay, there's only so many fish that can be taken every year. If we divide that up by days, you know, per day, per vessel, we'll set a limit. And then countries can auction their days. So if they've got excess days, they could give them to another Pacific country to sell and, and so on. And the idea is that they will gradually limit the cap during the bad years when there's not enough fish around and the price will go up because the fishing fleets will have to pay more to buy a day's worth of fishing. And it's a system that's working. It involves putting monitors on the boats. And so you have uh, representatives of the Forum Fisheries Agency and Pacific governments on the deepwater fishing nations so they can monitor you know, how much fish has been taken, what's happening. So it's quite an elaborate system. Still not perfect, still a long way to go. And there's a lot of illegal and undocumented fishing uh, unrecorded by uh, these sorts of schemes. But it's much better than it was 20 years ago. And Pacific governments have seen a massive increase, quadrupling the sort of revenues that they're getting from fisheries. And it's an attempt, as I say, to create a sustainable fishery, although it's going to be very hard to do, so that people will be able to eat tuna in uh, generations to come. And what's the work for the new alliance? What are they going to do or what are they doing already? Part of this is, is that all these questions are intensely political and the Law of the Sea, which was created in the late 70s, came into force in the 1980s, about 1985. That's many decades ago, and technologies have changed. And the Law of the Sea doesn't account for certain aspects that have implications today. I'll give you one example. Uh, the guy who sequenced DNA, Craig Venter, an American research scientist, set up a private operation in competition with uh, government agencies that were working on the DNA sequencing. Venter set up his own privatised operation, uh, hoping to patent the, the benefits of DNA and make a profit out of selling life forms. He's sent a vessel across the Pacific a few years ago that was scooping up microorganisms from the ocean and uh, isolated parts of the Pacific. The belief was that they might find on isolated reefs certain microorganisms that couldn't be found anywhere else in the world. And uh, with incredible technology nowadays, the idea was that you may be able to find a life form that would have valuable biodiversity impacts, possibly for pharmaceuticals, for painkillers, all sorts of things. And the idea was that having gathered these materials from the ocean, that uh, if something interesting was found through processing, uh, through DNA technologies and so on, that the company might be able to patent that life form and therefore anyone who wanted to benefit from the drug or from the technique or whatever that was found uh, from these microorganisms would have to pay for the privilege. And drug companies are into patenting uh, all sorts of chemical things that they've found. But this is a whole complex area about patenting human life forms as well as uh, natural life forms. And there's been a lot of work done by Pacific Islanders. When I worked in Fiji during the 1990s, we um, developed a draft treaty called the Hagahai Treaty, uh, working with the Hagahai people in Papua New Guinea to protect the patenting of life forms because you had medical people coming in to uh, take blood samples from isolated tribes, uh, isolated islanders, figuring that their blood would be different to people in major cities like New York and so on and that you may be able to patent uh, genetic material, blood and so on from uh, these isolated communities that hadn't been affected by a range of diseases that people in urban centres have been affected by. It's a huge industry nowadays, this sort of biotechnology, and many Pacific Islanders call it biopiracy. 
they think that it's unethical and immoral to be trying to patent God's creation, um, as many religious Pacific Islanders feel. And so there's a huge battleground in the oceans and indeed on land about free, prior and informed consent for people so that they know what they're getting into when some scientist comes and says, this is for the good of humanity. We may find a new wonder drug to cure cancer. Um, You should be sharing your resources, uh, your ocean resources with us for the good of humanity. Well, Pacific Islanders were told in 1946 that they needed to leave their islands so we could let off nuclear weapons for the good of humanity. Uh, And the islanders are still living with the consequences. So uh, nowadays people don't take that with the same uh, goodwill that they did in 1946. And it's thanks once again to Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher, just back from Fiji and I believe off to Fiji again, but doesn't stay still for very long, but always available to us here at 3CR. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian starves in support the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Ladies and gentlemen, this panel is now on air. In July 1976, from an old warehouse in High Street, Armadale, 3CR Community Radio hit the airwaves. Heralding 40 years of independent, community-owned and controlled radio. This will be the first station owned and operated by a cooperative of community organisations on a Melbourne-wide basis. This is 3CR. As the status quo of old media is challenged, as publications come and go, in a country with the highest concentration of media ownership in the world, 3CR continues to broadcast radical, insightful radio 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. We're not talking about land rights, we're talking about sovereignty. That's why it's important for us to be at the 10 Embassy. From the protests against the Franklin River Dam to the 1998 waterfront dispute, from the east-west tunnel picket to the Aboriginal 10 Embassy, the history of 3CR is dynamic and passionate and ongoing. I was born here. I will die here. I am not moving. So as we celebrate 40 years in 2016, we ask you, our volunteers, listeners and supporters, to join in in saying, Happy Birthday 3CR! The lives of tens of thousands of people changed forever on the 26th of April 1986. 
30 years ago, one of the reactors deep within the Chernobyl power plant exploded, causing the world's worst nuclear disaster. The town of Pritjat, with a population of 50,000, three kilometres from the power plant in the Ukraine, was once hailed as being a vision of the future, with progressive town planning and modern architecture. It all came to a sudden, violent halt. And today, the town is still a no-go zone because of the high levels of radiation, and nature has reclaimed the once-thriving city. I'm joined by Bill Williams from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War to talk about the past and the present. And Bill, looking at the past, the history of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, how long had it been in operation and were there any previous incidents due to the type of plant it was? Yeah, look, I can't give you an exact date of, of how old that reactor was. And I thought that you might ask me that, so I've been trying to find out and, you know, Googling away and haven't been successful. But it, it wasn't a brand new reactor by any stretch of the imagination. As far as I know, it was at least a decade old. And I've not seen any evidence that it had had major, you know, dramas prior to this event in 1986. Can you remember that day? In April 1986? Yeah, April 26, 1986, I was actually working in London in North Middlesex Hospital practising obstetrics. I was training to deliver babies. So, yeah, it was quite a major event in the Northern Hemisphere, as it was everywhere, I suppose. But, uh, you know, in the early days after the, um, the accident, no one was actually aware of what had happened. It wasn't until I think uh, one of the, the nuclear power plants in Sweden, a place called Forsmark, they started registering unusual radioisotopes in the atmosphere and that alerted them to the fact that the reactor somewhere had uh, obviously started discharging significant volumes of these unusual isotopes. And that, that's what sort of alerted the world to it and it was after that that the Soviet authorities acknowledged it. But I think that was actually two days afterwards that the Soviets first started alerting people. And at that time, they were actually kind of denying that it was a major event. But so it was really, that's where I was. I was in the Northern Hemisphere delivering babies. And uh, within about a week or two, there was uh, radioactive cesium being deposited all over Western Europe, including in the northern parts of the United Kingdom. What actually happened on that day? It's a sort of ongoing controversy about exactly what happened. But essentially... As I understand it, a team of relatively inexperienced operators were performing a series of tests on the reactor and there was an unexpected power surge which quite rapidly went out of control and that caused a substantial explosion which then led to fires inside the reactor and a loss of coolant and the graphite moderators inside the reactor between the actual fuel rods were sprung alight. They started burning and there were further explosions and the, there was no what they call secondary containment. The reactor design in itself was, you know, by any ima- imagining, inadequate for containing an event like this. So what happened is the roof of the reactor was blown off and a massive amount of radioactive inventory that the isotopes the inside and, and debris was lofted into the atmosphere. I think like 100 tonnes or 150 tonnes of this rubbish was deposited very rapidly into the atmosphere and uh, then the 
the wind blew it across Europe and uh, essentially across the Northern Hemisphere. So in, in the initial sort of week after the event, uh, there were really uh, heavy contamination all around the reactor, all over the, the three nearest Soviet states, which was the Ukraine, which is where the reactor is, Belarus and Russia itself. But then, you know, quite high levels of radioactivity were recorded over the ensuing weeks in neighbouring countries, in Germany, in Scotland, in Sweden, and within weeks and months there was detectable radioactive debris all over the Northern Hemisphere, just by nature of the fact that the, the winds and currents move all this radioactive material around quite quickly. Are you aware of, of how long it was before independent observers were allowed in? Because as you said, they kept quiet about it for the first couple of days. I'm just wondering how long it was before outsiders were allowed in to assess what was happening. To, to my knowledge, um, I don't think there were sort of substantially close-up independent observers. You know, it was the Soviet Union. It was a pretty close society. I don't, I don't think anything, anyone like even the International Atomic Energy Agency was sending observers in at that stage. I mean, there were... People, um, all sorts of people went to the Soviet Union, uh, you know, soon afterwards to lobby and so forth, and in, including a, a group of doctors from the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War went in to the Soviet Union afterwards. Funnily enough, well, not so funny really, but I, I know that a delegation visited the Soviet Union the year before this happened and was told by the senior official of the Soviet Atomic Energy Agency that there was a one in a million chance of there ever being any major accident with any of their reactors. So within 12 months that accident had occurred. Now there was a town, a fairly substantial town, not far from the reactor, wasn't there? It's no longer there. That's right, yeah. The closest um, town is called Pipchat. I think I'm correctly pronouncing it correctly. That uh, town was uh, evacuated pretty promptly. I think they started evacuating people from Pripchat within a couple of days and that entire population was moved, 130,000 people, quite quickly, apart from a few people who remained in the area and I, and I believe some people still living in, in the area who refused to be evacuated. So there were uh, around 130,000 people evacuated from there and then over the coming weeks, there were further evacuations from other parts, uh, you know, other surrounding areas in the Ukraine in particular, and I think from parts of Belarus as well, totaling something like 350,000 people over time uh, from those areas. Some of, the, some of those areas have been repopulated again, but as I understand it, there's still at least a couple of hundred thousand people who were evacuated who essentially never returned. Are you aware of the health effects from those people and the assistance they got from the authorities to deal with what they've gone through? There's an enormous amount of literature looking at you know, what's happened to people, including the liquidators, so the people who are mostly you know, sort of young Soviet conscript soldiers who were sent in to do work on the suddenly destroyed reactors, so people and people without any particular skills, but who went in to shovel concrete or dig dirt or um, throw sandbags or whatever, and many of them had very high exposure levels. In all, there was somewhere between, depending on which sources you look, but at least half a million 
mostly young men, up to 800,000 in this group of liquidators. So some of them had extremely high levels of exposure. 50 or so people died quite quickly from acute radiation illness as a consequence. And then you've got this enormous sort of cohort of the other five to 800,000 who've been, some of them have been followed up carefully, some of them have just disappeared without a trace. And then on top of that, there are hundreds of thousands, millions of people who were living in, in the vicinity who suffered uh, high levels of uh, exposure to radioactivity. And in fact, everybody, certainly in the Northern Hemisphere, but everybody, something like you know, hundreds of millions of people, 600 million people have, have been exposed on average to elevated levels of radiation as a consequence of that massive amount of radioactivity that was dumped into the atmosphere and then onto the, the land and sea as a consequence of that initial event. As I say, there's, been, there's a lot of studies, there's a lot of research. Uh, it's not terribly well kind of integrated. There's been no kind of detailed you know, following of populations adequate to the task. But we know from looking at the studies that have been done that there have been you know, serious epidemics, in particular of cancer of the thyroid, which is the little gland in our necks which is responsible for maintaining our metabolism. There was a, a sudden spike in, in uh, children who were presenting with these cancers of the thyroid gland. That started quite quickly, about five years after the initial explosion and sort of rapidly escalated. It was officially denied, actually, by most authorities at the time because no-one believes it would happen, but it did. And by now, there's roughly about six or 7,000 people who've suffered cancers of the thyroid directly as a consequence of that exposure, and that number will sort of steadily increase out to probably about 30,000 people, some of whom will die. It's a treatable cancer, but even for the people who don't die, it's a massive impost on them in terms of illness and quite debilitating treatment as well. And then uh, as well as those thyroid cancers, there's very good evidence for other types of cancers, solid cancers like breast cancer and bone cancer, as well as what we call hematological malignancies, particularly leukemias. There's, there's elevated levels in parts of the exposed populations, uh, as well as um, other types of non-cancer diseases, cardiac disease, stroke disease, and then very high levels of mental health illnesses as a consequence of the Chernobyl catastrophe. Those physical consequences, are they likely to be for the, the, the animals living in the areas as well? I'm sure. Uh, in fact, yeah, there's actually very good evidence. There's a really interesting research project led by a biologist, an American called Tim Mousseau. Listeners might be interested to look at his work if they just Google Tim Mousseau, M-O-U-S-S-E-A-U, and have a look at the work they've been doing. They're, they're essentially botanists and biologists, and they're studying the you know, molecular genetics. So they're looking at all sorts of animal and um, plant populations around the Chernobyl area, but also uh, in Japan, the Fukushima area, looking at the impact on DNA, uh, the, so the genes in, in the cells of all these different plant and animal tissues, and finding all sorts of really disturbing changes in uh, animal populations, in plant populations, at a, at a sub-cellular level. So there's no question. I mean, we know enough now, after you know many years of being able to look at the genome, that radiation, ionising radiation, coming from these isotopes like, for example, cesium, 
133 and strontium 90 and cesium 137 and iodine 131 in particular, they are emitting energy in the form of waves or particles which damage the DNA, which is the kind of coding messenger in, in all living cells. And so when the DNA gets damaged and if it doesn't repair itself, it decodes abnormally. And it's essentially the, the cause of cancer or the, you know, an important part of that kind of pathogenic pathway from normal tissue to abnormal tissue. And so we would expect to see changes and damage to DNA and that to express itself in, in the form of disease, not just in humans, but uh, abnormalities in animals and plants. And that's what this evidence is showing. I can remember, I think, the the initial concern in Scandinavia and, and Europe, and particularly Britain, where they they killed the deer or they, they weren't allowed mm. to eat the deer anymore. And in England and other countries, they, they, they weren't allowed to kill the... I think it was the... The, the sheep and they couldn't drink the cow's milk, that sort of thing. Mm. Yes, I mean, th- that's right. And, and in extensive parts of Europe, that went on for many, many years. And there are still parts of Europe where it's still, you know, there's still testing going on, looking at levels of, particularly looking at the level of radioactive cesium in, in the meat, because a lot of, especially forest animals like reindeer and, and wild boar in, in the forests, they nibble on lichen, which stores the radioactive cesium and it because it behaves um, a bit like uh, the element potassium it's uh, sequestered into to tissue and can be found in the animal tissue after the, the you know long after they've eaten it so you know parts of Scotland were essentially they weren't able to sell their lamb uh, for many years as a consequence of elevated levels of radioactivity this was common throughout many European countries and as I say to this day there are parts of Europe where it's still too radioactive and that will continue I mean cesium has a half-life of about 30 years so it means that's about 300 years before there'll be no significant radiation being emitted from those isotopes in that country. Well looking at the area 30 years on I believe that a few people have gone back but all in all many many people just left everything they were told in that especially in that town don't worry you'll virtually sort of come back tomorrow leave all your belongings all your valuables they haven't gone back yeah that's right i mean it's still hundreds of thousands of people who who were evacuated many of them will never go back uh and the sort of emotional consequences uh, i think you know we can all imagine how it would feel if one day the authorities came around and told us that you know, we had to leave our, our homes, you know, it's, and in communities like that, you know, people, families have often lived in those areas for many, many, many generations. So it's a major psychological trauma. And uh, that certainly, you know, has been evidence for that in the, the psychological studies that they've done. has been very strong and hardly surprising. Looking at the physical aspects of the power plant, what's there now and what have they done to... I don't know what the right word is. It not yeah. to reconstruct it or to try and contain it. Contain basically. it, yes. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So initially, there were there, they spent about two weeks putting out the fire. Uh, ultimately, uh, as I understand it, by dropping concrete and sand and uh, other stuff from helicopters onto the burning reactor, and that, that eventually stopped the the fire, and that produced the the fallout that was pouring out of the reactor up until then. And 
then they created a thing called a sarcophagus, or they called it a sarcophagus, so a big, great big concrete structure, a shell, to try and permanently prevent it from leaking more radiation into the surrounding environment. But that structure, the, the first one they built, fairly quickly started to erode and decay and crack and become in itself a, a major risk to the surrounding environment. So a sort of a global uh, team was set up to address that and they've been building uh, another containment structure which is still, as I understand it, under construction, supposed to be completed by next year or the year after. And the idea is that that newer, better, internationally supervised structure being built by a French firm is going to give it permanent stability, although you'd have to wonder about that. You know, it's a, it's one of those situations that's rather common in the nuclear industry where populations are used essentially as guinea pigs because we don't actually know. It's a little bit like the whole argument around how do you manage nuclear waste. Well, how do you manage something that's going to be poisonous for 100,000 years? You don't know. So we're all guinea pigs, really, and the people living in the vicinity of Chernobyl will remain guinea pigs of the nuclear industry for many generations to come as a consequence of this. It's cost them billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars up to now to try and contain that hot, toxic reactor carcass, uh, and it will continue to cost billions and billions and billions of dollars for the foreseeable future. There was only one of the reactors that blew. There were three others. I believe that the, the plant stayed in operation for another many, 20 years or so. Till two, yep. It wasn't shut down till 2000. Um, tw- yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> How did they manage and, uh, that? Presumably, yeah, presumably that, that um, those other reactors had this the same sort of flaws in the design too. So, I mean, I think they did correct it to some extent, but, yeah, they kept using them. They kept generating electricity for quite a while afterwards. Just stay with the environmental impacts for a little bit longer. I did read that all the trees were dead, but they didn't lie down, that things don't decay because of the, the effect of the radiation. And one harmful effect they talked about was that there's a huge build-up of leaves from the from the trees that have died and the leaves don't decay either. And if there was a, a forest fire, those leaves would burn and you would have radioactive smoke going up into the atmosphere again. I don't know about that. <laughs> I can't comment. <laughs> it sounds pretty frightening though, doesn't it? It does. I mean, I, like, I, I think... I mean, look, that... that may be true, I don't know, I, but for me, I don't need to um, speculate about you know anything else. If you just look at the situation with the, the numbers of people who have uh, suffered as a consequence of the, this the catastrophe, it, uh, it, yeah, it's just about unimaginable, really. So just imagine for people who are living in Melbourne, you know, in an evacuation area that's, you know, say 40 or 50 kilometres in radius, you, you're halfway to Geelong or... Uh, you know, way out past Werribee, this whole expanse of country where people have lived for thousands and thousands of years, which has been contaminated almost forever. It's a, it's a terrible thing to have done. Lessons learned? Oh, look, I think, uh, you know, it depends on, you know, how you slice the bread in a way. The people who are deeply committed to the idea that nuclear power is a good thing have been able to represent it as being not such a big deal and, you know, we can have more Chernobyls, it doesn't matter. But uh, actually, 
If you look at what's happened in terms of building reactors, if you look at the industry itself, it, it suffered a, a near fatal blow. You know, people saw what happened and understood that nuclear power is uh, a dangerous technology. It's incredibly expensive. It's extremely toxic. It has negative effects which affect millions and millions of people and cost billions and billions of dollars to repair. Uh, and that reflected itself in the fact that people stopped building nuclear reactors. I mean, instead of this sort of, you know, more and more nuclear reactors being built and increasing proportions of global electricity being created through nuclear technologies, what we've seen is, a, a, at first, a, a stabilisation in the number of reactors and then a sort of slow decline. And even with um, lots of people sort of arguing that we should build lots more reactors because of global warming to replace coal, what's happened is that the contribution from nuclear power in terms of global electricity supply, it's gone from a peak in the early 90s of about 16% of global electricity supply down to now it's at about 11%, and they're barely building enough reactors to actually replace the current fleet. So what, I mean, I think we'll see is a, a slow decline, and, you know, many countries have gotten out of nuclear power or will get out of nuclear power over the next 10 years or so. Uh, unfortunately, we have you know, seen a fantastic expansion in the rollout of renewable technologies like wind and solar and even you know, solar thermal and tide and wind, uh, sorry, water wave power. So uh, that's the good news, that uh, we can get rid of nukes uh, without having to produce lots more coal-fired power stations, if only we have the political will. Well, many people thought that the accident at Fukushima would be the, the death knell, but they seem to have bounced back from that one a bit. Well, a bit. I, I mean, it's, it's still, you know, most of the reactors that were chugging along and producing electricity in Japan at the time of the Fukushima reactor are still offline, and many of them have been shut down forever. The Germans have said we're not going to build any more and we're going to close them all down by about 2020 and quite a few other nations have said that even though if you believed what you read in the media press you know there's this massive nuclear renaissance in fact i mean there are quite a few reactors being built in china a few being built in india i mean it's not a lot of reactors and i think there's about 60 being built at the moment many of them have been in process for you know, 20 or 30 years. It's not an industry that's alive and kicking. It's it's sort of chugging along, but it, it's not going to be a big player in the in the long-term future of global energy supplies. Fukushima and Chernobyl, people were able to predict these massive accidents would happen. It wasn't like this was a sort of horrible surprise to many of us. It was a horrible, you know, event, but it wasn't a surprise, and, and it's just part of the reason why nukes are essentially a dinosaur technology. They're, they're just not an option for the long-term future of humanity. The trouble is, though, that they leave behind a lot of waste and it just the decommissioning of the, the plants is a, a huge undertaking. Mm. Of course, yes, that's right. I mean, it's, it's not like even if we shut down all the reactors next year or something like that, we would still be burdened with dealing with this enormous pile of waste uh, and including the decommissioning process. That's something that our descendants will inherit from us, unfortunately.
Friday in April 1986 The day that the nightmare began Oh, the dust it rained down On our buildings and streets And into our bedrooms at noon Touch the grass and the trees Bicycles, cars Beds, books and picture frames too We stood around, helpless, confused Nobody knew what to do At two o'clock Sunday the buses arrived A fleet of a thousand or more We were ordered to be on our way Not knowing what lay in store Some of our citizens fled in dismay To look for a good place to hide Four o'clock came and the last bus pulled out It was the day that our lively town died And the shirt sheets and handkerchiefs crack in the wind On the window ledge the withering plants The ladders and vulgars are parked by the door And the bike's in its usual stance Our evergreen trees lie withered and drooped They poisoned our fertile land The streets speak a deafening silence Nothing stirs but the sand visit back home is so eerie today A modern Pompeian view To see all the old shops and the forest hotel And the promenade cinema too The mementos we gathered were all left behind Our photos and letters and cards Toys of our children, untouchable now Toy soldiers left standing on guard Fare thee well, Pritchett, my home and my soul Your sorrow can know no relief A terrifying glimpse of the future you show Your children all scattered like geese The clothesline still sways, but the owner's long gone As the nomadic era returns The questions in black and white blurred into grey The answer's too easy to learn And the shirt sheets and handkerchiefs crack in the wind On the window ledge the withering plants And the ladders and vulgars are parked by the door And the bikes in its usual stance Our evergreen trees lie withered and drooped They poisoned our fertile land The streets speak a deafening silence 
silence Nothing stirs but the sand And the shirt sheets and handkerchiefs Crack in the wind On the window ledge the withering plants And the ladders and vulgars Are parked by the door And the bikes in its usual stance Our evergreen trees lie withered and drooped They've poisoned our fertile land The streets speak a deafening silence Nothing stirs but the sand And that was a song by Irish folk singer Christy Moore. It wasn't Christy Moore singing it in that instance, though. Before that, we heard from Dr Bill Williams, who's a member of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. That's all I have for today. Coming up in about one and a half minutes' time is Done By Law, so I'll say goodbye, and we'll be back next Tuesday at four. Bye for now.